It is always a great privilege to come together to honor and worship our God. So much appreciate uh, those who've led the worship thus far. Uh, wonderful songs that we were able to sing together to encourage one another and praise our God and appreciate the good reading and uh, the wonderful prayer that Jeff has led us in. We're going to be looking tonight into God's Word. The title of the lesson is Condensed Truth. Uh, I told Scott I would warn you that doesn't necessarily mean that the lesson is going to be condensed, though, so don't be expecting to get out early necessarily. Uh, but we would uh, like to examine, uh, particularly tonight, how Jesus was able to present truth that was so deep and so true, if you will, yet often in such a concise way. His hearers uh, appreciated that, sometimes marveled at it. And it tells us, first of all, about Jesus, that he was the master of truth. It's only somebody who has truth fully mastered that can uh, explain it in you know concise, condensed way that is so powerful. Uh, secondly, I think it says to us that uh, the gist of truth is just that. It is something that does not have to be elaborate, so detailed that, you know, we can't follow it. But often the gist of truth has a core to it that we can understand with um, very simple language. We live in an age that seeks to condense and simplify everything from what we eat to what we read. There's a, such a thing as a reader's digest, right? That's uh, stories and news articles and other things that are condensed down uh, for our digestion, mentally, so to speak. Uh, I thought about, and instead of using the, the small Bible for a visual tonight, I thought about using a can of Campbell's condensed tomato soup, right? Because we're we're all familiar with that. That's amazing stuff. You know, you got all this, these tomatoes in there, but they're all bunched together. The soup is, it's all bunched together in there. You, you, you put it in a pan, but you have to add water or milk to it to, to make it actually soup. It's more like jelly when it comes out of there, but it's so condensed down. So we understand the, the concept of condensing something. Uh, we, we, we condense things down all the time. Uh, sports uh, athletes, often in games, will condense down a whole play and all the, the, uh, the uh, you know, technical, technical things of it, the complexities of a whole play in a football game or a basketball game, maybe into just one word. We're going to run this or we're going to do that. I remember Bill Bradley was an NBA all-star basketball player from um, my mother's hometown. His family was friends with her family. He went to, uh, he was also a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, besides that, later on, he was a U.S. senator. Bill Bradley said one time about basketball, he played many years for the New York Knicks, he said one time about basketball that it just makes you dumb because uh, everything is in really, really small words uh, <laughs> on the basketball floor uh, to describe what's going on, but not really. It, it, they just condense everything down to uh, really distilled, concentrated form. The religious people of Jesus' day were accustomed to making long, drawn-out legal statements to explain God's law, particularly even just the Ten Commandments. Volumes and volumes and volumes of the words of the rabbis from the time about that Jesus lived until centuries later, uh, books 
of unimaginable length have been written in the Jewish Talmud and Mishnah to explain ten very simple, straightforward commandments. Jewish lawyers were experts in how to keep the law. If there was difficulty in understanding a, a precept or a concept, the lawyers would step in and give long, drawn-out legal advice about how to do that. Eventually, their regulations, of course, blinded them to the truth. Their explanations were so drawn out and tradition-filled and human opinion that it, the explanations themselves lost sight of the truth. So you could dig through all of that and you wouldn't even have the truth. Jesus talked to them about this many times. You've got all these traditions. You've, you've built them all on what you think to be the Word of God, but you've lost sight of the Word of God in all of the minutiae and the details of your explanations. So people read all these explanations and they never get to the truth. I was sitting on a plane a few years ago traveling across the big pond uh, next to somebody who was uh, going to Israel for Jewish rabbinical school. And uh, I was talking to him about his understanding of the Old Testament. And uh, uh, how far along were you in your, in your rabbinical school? And he says, well, we, I've been studying several years. And, and I said, well, how much do you know about uh, the, the Hebrew Old Testament? He said, oh, nothing. We haven't even started to read that yet. They were reading nothing but rabbinical traditions and studying those before they ever even got to the simple Bible, the truth of God's Word. So Jesus is uh, amazing in that he takes what the scribes and the lawyers and the doctors of the law had muddled and confused and enlarged to such an extent that you couldn't understand it. He takes all of that and draws it down to its most concise, condensed, straightforward meaning. In Matthew chapter 23, he actually, Jesus does, condemns the scribes for their approach to all of this. He says to the scribes and Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done without leaving the others undone, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. They had gotten down into the very fine points of the law and even beyond that in developing traditions and rules for how to keep those fine points. Exactly how much uh, of these spices did you have to give and how did, how did you measure them out and what quality were they supposed to be and on and on and on. They'd just gone down into all of the details of that, making rules even that God had not made. And Jesus said, you, you don't even know what the main point is. You don't even know what the main point of the law is. Justice, mercy, you know anything about that? Well, no. But we can tell you how much, you know, anise you're supposed to tithe and how you're supposed to do that. So they had, they had lost in, in the forest, they'd lost the trees. They had gotten so detailed. Jesus' teaching was much different. When you look at Mark chapter 1 and verse 21, early in his ministry, uh, they went into Capernaum, and uh, immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and taught. So those in the synagogue were used to the rabbinical teachings. But in verse 22, it says that they were astonished at his teaching, 
For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. He's just telling them the truth. Not all this wrangling around about the truth, but the actual truth. So Jesus was and remains a master at distilling and clarifying truth. He often made concise statements that left his listeners absolutely stunned with both the simplicity and the wisdom. So Jesus came speaking in this way. He taught new concepts and old concepts in short parables or similes that um, immediately went to the mind and generated a concept of truth. And so his explanation of the truth, his declaration of the truth, demonstrated that he is indeed the way, the truth, and the life. When Pilate asked Jesus the question, what is truth? How ironic, when truth was standing embodied before him, Jesus is the truth. And so it doesn't surprise us that he was this way. What I want to do tonight in this lesson is look at a few statements that Jesus made along this line that get to the core of vital truths, cut through all of, you know, the human tradition and the monkey business and the what-ifs and the what-ams and all of that sort of thing, and just get to the core of what the good Lord intended us to understand and know. So Jesus condensed the truth. And we're going to look, first of all, in Matthew chapter 22. Most of these are going to come... uh, Toward the end of Jesus' ministry, uh, right before or during the last week of his life on earth, when he was being tested continually with what the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and others thought were really difficult questions that would take long explanations that Jesus was sure to get wrong. But that's not what happened on most of these occasions, certainly. So in Matthew chapter 22, in verse 35, you have one of these instances One of the Pharisees, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now to us, that doesn't seem like it would be too difficult to answer. And yet, the scribes, the rabbis had argued around about that for decades by this time, probably centuries, and had had long disputes about what the greatest commandment is. We today often don't know what the really important things are. I'm on a a Facebook group. I I try to ignore most of the time, but it's called Preacher Talk, and it's just a bunch of preachers talking about preaching. And uh, a few months ago, somebody asked a question, you know, if you're preaching for the year, uh, what are the most important things, the, the big rocks, the, the big truths that you want to make sure to convey in your preaching? And you wouldn't believe. I thought I was reading something written by Jewish rabbis. So there was, <laughs> you know, everybody had something different. Uh, several, I mean, there was all truth, more or less, that they were suggesting ought to be preached. But what's important? What are the big rocks? What are the, the main truths that we want to make sure to convey if we don't convey anything else? And they were all over the place. I mean, all over the place. 
So you see, even for us today, that's not illustrating the, the, the guys on that uh, group that some of them are really great, some maybe not so much. Maybe I'm on there, so maybe not so much for sure. But my point is not that, but it's this. We can't answer the question. What's the great commandment? What's the most important thing? What, what are you going to preach about if you don't preach about anything else? We can't answer the question. It's hard for us. It was really, would have been really hard in the day that Jesus lived. Wasn't hard for him. And you know the answer, right? Because this text is so familiar to us now. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The reason these are the greatest is because these two commandments inculcate everything. If you've got these two, included in these two is everything God wants you to do. It's all of the law and all of the prophets included in these two very concise, powerful statements and challenges to those who would follow God. That same point is made by Jesus pretty much earlier in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12 when he just says, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. This is the law of the prophet and the prophets. This is what it's all about. You just treat people like you want to be treated. Love folks like you want to be loved. And you'll be doing all that God wants you to do toward your fellow men. The apostles, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit, given by Jesus Christ, had that same concept. Paul explicates this, if you will, in Romans chapter 13 and verse 8, when he says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. He who loves another has fulfilled the law. You love like you're supposed to love. You fulfill the law. He explains that the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, are all summed up. There's the thing. It's all boiled down, condensed into this. It's all summed up in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. This is truth. This is truth at its most basic yet most profound. The truth that we need to make sure that we know above anything else. The commands that we must, must keep. And if we keep them, we'll keep them all. Isn't that a great lesson? Two great commandments. And Jesus boiled it all down to those. In Luke chapter 11, we have a similar sort of challenge, if you will. For us today, it would be for us today, it is for us today. It came to pass, in Luke 11 and verse 1, as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who has trespassed, indebted to us, I should say. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
We have spent this year, all year, discussing prayer from every single angle I can think of. I'm sure I haven't thought of all the angles. I haven't counted how many lessons I've preached on prayer. Some of you may be keeping a tally. I don't know. It's been a lot. And I don't feel like I've really covered it all. We are striving to be a house of prayer. I hope we've grown. I think we have. As a group together and as individuals in our prayer life. But you know what? Jesus teaches in the Greek language this model prayer as we call it. It's 57 words. I may have pre- might have preached 57 sermons on prayer this year. But in 57 words, Jesus distills it all down, doesn't he? This is prayer. Do this. When you pray, honor God. Hallowed be your name. Ask that his will be done, not yours. Pray for your physical needs. Give us this day our daily bread. And pray for your spiritual needs, forgiveness, strength to forgive others, overcoming temptation. How simple. Jesus is the master of truth. Jesus is the master of truth. Going back to Matthew, in Matthew chapter 19, you have another question that's asked now to test Jesus coming from the legal perspective of the Pharisees and the scribes. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees came to him in verse 3, testing him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? That was a a trying question again in that day. It's like uh, the other questions that we've looked at. It's a trying question today as far as that goes, isn't it? A lot of people have trouble giving a straightforward answer to that. Entire volumes have been written on the topic. Whether or not it's lawful to divorce for any reason or for whatever reason or what reason it's lawful to divorce for might be another way of saying it. The Jewish rabbis had argued for years on the subject. Leading up to the time of Christ, there were two very famous rabbis in Jewish history. They're well known to Jews even today, Shammai and Hillel. And they had had opposite views on this. Uh, Shammai uh, was very, very strict and uh, limited the uh, allowance in the Old Testament for divorce to only sexual immorality or fornication on the part of the wife. Hillel was much uh, broader about the application. He basically said if, um, if the, the wife or the woman offends the husband in any way, if you know, he doesn't like the way she, she cooks the goat stew, then he can divorce her for that or whatever it is. And so that, that argument started in Jesus' day, really, between these two very famous rabbis and was going on hot and heavy in Jesus' day and continued centuries, centuries later as the rabbis wrote uh, what is now the Jewish Talmud, 
Argument after argument after argument, building and building and building, all of the details, all the minutiae, all of the, you know, little specifics of how are we going to answer this, and what about this hypothetical situation, what about that hypothetical situation, and they, they just tossed all of that around all the time, and it's like a mixed up bowl of salad of some sort, and you have to pick all through it to find anything that makes any sense. Jesus says this, He answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Here's your answer. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Is that all the answer? He adds something to that in verse 9. Verse he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. That's about as straightforward as anything ever gets. Very simple words, very straightforward words. But God's joined together, let not man separate. You get a divorce for any cause other than the cause of fornication, remarry, that's adultery. If you are divorced for any cause and remarry, that's adultery. It really couldn't be any simpler. And, and not just the Jewish rabbis, but people who call themselves gospel preachers have wrangled around that. The books that have been written over the last just four or five decades among our brethren would fill a pretty good-sized library trying to explain the different positions on what Jesus made perfectly clear in about two verses. And we say, well, we have all of these situations that come up, and he didn't consider this, and he didn't consider this. Oh, yes, he did. It's all right there. We may not want to apply it to our situations, but it's all right there. Jesus is the master of truth. A really difficult question in his day is found in Matthew 22 again, and now we're in verse 17 over there. <clears throat> the Pharisees plotted in verse 15 how they could entangle him in his, his talk. They uh, and their disciples with the Herodians came to him and they said, Teacher, we know that you're true and you teach the way of truth in God. You don't care about anyone nor you to regard anyone's person. So they're trying to flatter him. And they, they asked this question then. They said, tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? To us, we may say, well, that's, that's not a hard question. But I, I, I think it may be even today. There are, uh, even among Christians, questions about do we pay certain kinds of taxes. There are some that um, you might say it's not a tax, but Social Security, you don't want to pay into that, for instance, for one reason or another. There are some that object to paying to other kinds of taxes for one reason or another. I've known Christians who've gone all the way back to, to the Constitution to say our whole in, income tax uh, system is illegal according to the Constitution, you know, <laughs> to get out of paying taxes. But in Jesus' day, this was a, a really touchy question. And the reason it was, of course, was that 
the Roman armies occupied Judea. In fact, there was a huge Roman garrison on the very edge of the temple, the Antonio Fortress. And uh, as Jesus is speaking these words, he's probably within eyeshot of that. And to say, don't pay taxes to Caesar, was treason to the Romans, of course. But to a lot of the Jews, it was treason to the Jews. Because this was an occupying army. These people, we're not supposed to be supporting their government. We're supposed to be rebelling against them. You had disciples uh, who come out of uh, traditions that were supposed to be rebelling against the Roman government to the extent of uh, assassinating them, killing them. Simon the Zealot, that would have been his view. On the other hand, you had Matthew who had been a tax collector for the Roman government. I, always, I often wonder how those two ever, ever got along, but they gave all of that up to follow Jesus. And that's, there's a lesson in that itself, isn't there? But my point is, it was a really difficult question. It was a tested question. It was a, it was a hot political question. It was a hot potato type question. And you kind of would, depend on how you answer that, you're going to put yourself on one side of the fence or the other, and everybody else on that other side of the fence is going to hate you. Jesus, of course, does not fall into that trap at all in answering the question. He perceived their wickedness in verse 18. And he says, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they, they brought to him a denarius, and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God's the things that are God's. And the text says, when they had heard these words, they marveled. They marvel because Jesus, in a sentence, did away with all of the questioning, all of the intrigue, all of the political, yeah, yeah, and just answered the question with the truth, as he did so many times. I hope tonight, if we don't get anything out of this lesson, that we will grow in our appreciation for Jesus' mastery of the truth. Only a master of truth could do what he did. Only somebody who knew the truth better than truth itself could do what he did in responding to these kinds of questions. I might say, just in passing, this is a freebie uh, tonight, no charge for this, uh, that this, this answer not only answers the question, should I pay my taxes? It also answers the question, how much should I give to God? Because he says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. If you're a Christian, what should you give to God? Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 5, praises the churches and the Christians in Macedonia for being such good givers. But he says the thing was, they gave not only as we'd hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord. Because when you're a Christian, you give yourself to God, and then God has all of you, as we talked about even last week in the Sunday night sermon.
We give all of ourselves to God. And then giving things to Him is of little consequence because they're His things anyway. The last one we want to look at tonight, just briefly, is found in Matthew chapter 19 again. And we're going to look in verse 16 now. Jesus answering several testing questions in these verses. One came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? What a great question. But it would have been answered in many different ways then as it is now. Uh, If we ask this question to religious leaders today, we would get all sorts of answers. You, You might say, well... Somebody might say, well, you you, you don't do anything. Uh, God's either going to save you or he's not going to save you. You don't have any choice in the matter. Somebody would say, well, you need to pray a little prayer, uh, the sinner's prayer or something like that. Somebody else might say, well, you have to go through catechism and accept this and do that. and All sorts of different hoops you might have to jump through. But Jesus deals with it straightforwardly and gives us and the man that asked the question the truth. He said to him in verse 17, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. But if you want to enter into life, here's the simple answer. Keep the commandments. You want to to go to heaven? You want to enter into eternal life? Do what God said do. That's about, keep the commandments, three words. (laughs) What do you want? You want to go to heaven? What, What are you supposed to do? Do what God said. Keep the commandments. Do what God said. He said to him, well, which ones? Jesus said, well, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. And so he gives them some of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself, which is not particularly one of the Ten Commandments, but it's the second greatest commandment. And the young man said, all these things I've kept from my youth up, what do I still lack? And Jesus said, well, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. So do everything that God said. Let go of, material, of the, the, this material world and follow me. Ultimately, would make a person perfect. Keep the commandment. Sell what you possess. Give to the poor. Follow me. Simple truth. The rich man was one who went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. He wasn't ready to do what was necessary to be done. Jesus' answer to this person on this occasion disturbed the disciples because they realized here was, here was a person who seemed to be sincerely seeking, who was, in fact, by all appearances at least, a commandment keeper. And yet he goes away and chooses not to follow Jesus, rejects eternal life for himself in that moment. And the disciples are concerned, and a little later on they ask the question, well, who then can be saved? And from the perspective of everything that we've talked about tonight, what God is telling us to do, what God's expecting of us, simple truths that we've looked at. That's a great question. Who then can be saved? You might be sitting here tonight and thinking, well, Steve, you're right, those are really simple, condensed truths, and I'm not sure how I measure up to all those truths. I'm not sure about keeping the first and second greatest commandments. Loving my neighbor as myself. I don't know if I've given myself to God in the way that I should and so on and so forth. 
who can be saved. Great truth here, because it's the truth of grace and the power of God. Maybe the greatest truth we'll look at tonight, and it's simply this. With men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Where do you stand in regard to these simple truths we've talked about tonight? Are you saved? Are you lost? Do you know? Can you be saved? I know you can be. As impossible as it may seem to a a given person lost in sin, with men it may be impossible, but with God, all things are possible. His grace is for you. His power is for you. It's found in the gospel. And if you would tonight respond to it, you could be saved. You could. You could be saved even tonight, and that's the truth. If you'd respond in a positive way, we'd ask you to come while we stand and while we sing.